We invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 to 10. Chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. But we'll only spend our time this morning considering verses 1 to 3. But I want you to know the rest of the story. I don't want to just simply deal with 1 to 3. The news is bad in verses 1 to 3. And uh, any sermon that only ends there is not a good sermon. So we don't want to do that. We want to keep in mind what happens after that. But I don't want to spend a lot of time there. We'll do that in the coming weeks. But for our purposes this morning, we want to consider Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Let's read. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So he begins here uh, in Ephesians 2 to continue to speak to a group of people who are, in many respects, not like us. There are many in this room, and I suspect there are many who are watching uh, via the recorded broadcast, who can say that they have been under the influence of Christian people, dare I say, their entire lives. Many of us, uh, I include myself in that, were the beneficiary of godly influences in our family, uh, maybe godly churches, maybe you were converted to Christ as a child. And uh, there would be those here who could say they hardly, if at all, can remember their lives prior to Christ. But do you know that in the ancient world, in the city of Ephesus, there's not one person who could say that? As you've already seen, Ephesus is a world-class city, probably third or fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire. It's a seaport town located uh, on the southern portion of uh, Turkey today, Asia Minor, uh, the home of uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. In fact, uh, you can do a little research on that temple, three times larger than the Parthenon in Athens was the temple at Artemis, a beautiful structure, obviously worthy of the title 
one of the wonders of the ancient world. And yet, in spite of all of that, there's virtually no emphasis for God until the Apostle Paul came on these missionary journeys, emphasizing the gospel, preaching the gospel, telling the good news that Jesus saves sinners. There's no one there who believes until they do. And all of these are what today missiologists would call first-generation Christians. Their mothers and fathers are not Christians. They were not raised in Christian families. They were not raised in Christian contexts. They were lost, and lost as lost could be. And everybody they'd ever known was lost. And in the midst of that, he reminds them of their circumstance or their situation and he does so with an eye toward bringing them good news he wants them to hear good news but in order to do that he has to remind them from the depths they've come he wants to remind them that he by God's grace has been an instrument of righteousness in their lives and that they now hear the gospel believe the gospel love the gospel trust the gospel and have been born again because of this gospel it is no small thing that as we read it today it is important that we too take ourselves back maybe that would be difficult but i assure you you can do it take ourselves back to that time in our lives when we were not christian and we were, as the Scripture describes, dead in our trespasses and sins. Let's think about that for a moment. I want you to note a couple of things quickly in these opening verses. First of all, he says that all are guilty. They're all guilty. Uh, You'll note the pronoun there, you, it is plural. He's talking to everybody in the church. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Nobody is excluded from that. Think of us. There was a time in our lives when we too were dead. Now that word is used intentionally. The apostle uses it again and again, not just in the book of Ephesians, but also later in the book of Colossians, as well as in the book of Romans. He uses this particular metaphor, you were dead. Now we know a great deal about death. We're not going to belabor this. Obviously it's a very... uh, I was going to say it's a very morbid subject, but that's sort of redundant, isn't it? So it won't. But we know enough about death. I would suggest to you that there really is no enemy like it. There really is no experience like it. Death marks the end of a person's life, so it marks the end of their interaction, our interaction with them. There's no more conversation. There's no more reflection. The storytellers go silent. The people who loved you and loved and you loved are gone. And gone is awful final. There's no experience in life like death. Death really is the, not only the last enemy, it's the greatest enemy. 
We have every reason in our flesh to fear death. The world today reminds us of that again and again. Three-fourths of the commercials I see on television, I don't watch a lot of television, but I can't help but watch a football game every three weeks. It's about all I can stomach of the failure of my team. But anyway, so in the remote times, even then I'm watching television, I note that three out of four commercials have to do with either losing weight or making your body beautiful or having some sort of procedure done or buying some sort of exercise equipment. I noticed that even Peloton bikes are now $400 off. Who knew? Um, so I want to suggest to you that the world is fascinated with fighting death and defying death until they can't fight anymore. The world is scared to death of dying. And if we were not Christian people, we would be too. So when he uses that metaphor, you are dead, we understand. We understand the finality of it, the pain of it, the sorrow of it, we understand. And he says, you were. Note that the verb is past tense. You were dead. Praise God. You were dead. But his point in bringing it up here is not merely to celebrate the fact that we've been transformed, but to remind us that there was a time in our lives when we were absolutely without hope. There was no hope. We were, he uses, uh, if you will, vivid language. We were, verse 2, following the course of this world. Following the course of this world. Following the ways of this world. We were chasing this and chasing that and having our way and deciding that this is valuable or this is important or this brings me significance or this adds value to my life. We were following the course of this world and we were chasing after rainbows or chasing after butterflies or chasing after popularity or success or money or esteem or whatever we were chasing after. We were following the course of this world. And the people who do that give evidence that they are dead. Dead. That's what dead people in the Lord, that's what they do. They follow the course of this world. He used another phrase, following the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. In the ancient world, the air, what we would call today the sky or the atmosphere, the air. The air was the domain of demons. Demons were visualized as inhabiting the air. So they were not buried under the ground where you couldn't see them or they couldn't do anything. Seemingly the ground had them in straitjackets. So the notion was not so much that demons were, were underground, though they clearly were, they clearly are, but the, the air was considered the domain of demons. And you'll note here, the prince of the power of the air. That's a modifier for Satan. Satan, even Jesus acknowledges, the prince of this world. We acknowledge that we don't war against flesh and blood. The apostle is going to cover that vividly when we get to chapter 6 in this very letter. We don't war against flesh and blood, but we war against 
the prince of the power of the air, and all of the demons at his beck and call. He has a third modifier, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience. Think of that terminology. We are guilty of being the sons and daughters of someone. We didn't get to decide who. We didn't get to pick our parents. But our parents have given birth to us, and we are the sons and ostensibly the daughters of disobedience. They were as much the son of Adam as we are the son of Adam. You know, the world likes to divide people into uh, categories that allows the world to judge, right? So we, we have categories good and bad, we have categories of pretty and not pretty. We have categories of popular and not popular, rich and poor. We have, if you will, strata of people. If you were to go to many parts of the East Asian world today, you would find that people were born in, are, are born into caste systems, and those systems are designed to keep people at, in their place. The, the, the terminology, stay in your place, know your place, and stay in your place fits well in many parts of the world, and to some degree fits well even with this understanding. We are the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience. He uses that phrase in this very book in chapter 5, verse 6. I'll read that verse. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The apostle apparently liked that term, used it twice in this letter alone. The sons of disobedience. Sort of a like father, like son. Susan's family is particularly interested in identifying who babies look like. Can I just say, I don't share the fascination with that. But her family loves it. So the minute you have a baby, if my wife shows up, she's trying to decide, does he look like the father or the mother? I just want to know, is he a boy or a girl? So I don't make a mistake, you know. Call her him or him her. I don't really care about whether he looks like you. or My assumption is he looks like you. He's yours, right? I mean, you just can't, you can't fake it. You, you mark your children. For good or evil, you mark them. You just do. They look like you. And you say, well, you know, that's a really beautiful woman. There's a really handsome man. And have you noticed that baby, how ugly he is? <laughs> now, I know y'all don't talk like that because y'all are super spiritual, right? <laughs> super spiritual. But the reality is, it's an even greater miracle when you have two average-looking mom and dad, and you have this gorgeous baby. I mean, the Gerber baby kind of, you know. Could, the kid could be a movie star. He's so beautiful. Okay, the point I'm trying to make is you look like your parents. You do. Let's, let's just acknowledge you do. You look like your parents. And the Scripture says... Before God is your father, you're a son of disobedience. 
His point in all of this is just to say, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same shape. Remember, he's talking to people who are first-generation Christians. He's, he's talking to people that he didn't have to sell that to. Now, I've found that in our version of Christianity, where so many of us were raised, as it were, at the knee of people who are Christians, and many of us could say that we are multi-generation of Christians in our family. That's not the case in Ephesus. Many of us, it's very difficult for us to ever get used to the idea, I used to be dead in my trespasses. He's not talking about me, because there's never been a time when I don't know that God loved me. There's never been a time when I was ever terribly rebellious. There's never been a time when I wasn't a good child. So I'm telling you, that's a harder sell today than it was then. But we need to hear it today. They're guilty. We're guilty. All of us are guilty. The entire second and half of the third chapter of Romans is intended to make that very point. That nobody has an excuse before God. That nobody is excluded from God. Even the good people, even the happy people, even the so-called beautiful people, even the popular people, even the people that appear to have it all put together and neatly packaged, they are lost in their trespasses and sins. They are dead. Dead. Again, we don't have to belabor dead, but I'm reminded that Jesus is the only antidote for death, is he not? He's the only antidote. I can't help but think of the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, John chapter 11. Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus. You remember uh, he had gotten word some four days earlier that Lazarus was near death. Jesus does not go. That disqualifies Jesus for being a pastor in a Southern Baptist church. If you wait, you fail. But Jesus waited, John chapter 11. And you'll remember that Martha greets Jesus, and there is an interesting phrase in our English Bibles. It says, Master, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That feels and sounds like a rebuke. It's your fault that he died because you didn't come. That's what it feels like to us because we're superimposing our, if you will, our understanding of the situation, our agenda on Jesus. Jesus has to come. He has to be available, et cetera, et cetera. But I would offer an alternative interpretation. That may have been what Martha was saying. Either way, Jesus allowed it to go past. and He didn't take it up and argue against it. But it may be that Martha was saying a word of affirmation. Teacher, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died is an affirmation. If you could have gotten here, you could have saved him. That was a way of her, of, of affirming Jesus, of acknowledging Jesus, if you will, of elevating Jesus and saying, you, you are the fix, you're the solution, you're the one that we're looking to. We know that you have the power. But there is an implied, there is an implied message in Martha's comment. Teacher, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. There is an implied comment, now that he's died, there's nothing you can do. Martha had a category called, Jesus can fix my brother before he dies. But Martha did not have a category, Jesus can fix my brother after he dies. Jesus said, your brother will live again. Roll the stone away. Lazarus, come forth. 
and Lazarus is raised from the dead. You know, death, death is a real issue. I don't have the fix for death, and you don't have the fix for death, and no other scientist you know has a fix for death. Education is not the answer. Nutrition is not the answer. Better pathology is not the answer. There is no earthly fix for death. The scripture says, you were dead. The only antidote for death is life, and the only one who holds life is the resurrection and the life, Jesus Christ. The only fix for your problem and my problem is Jesus. He and he alone. We live in a multicultural world that wants to suggest that there are many ways to God, except every one of those other than the one way advocated among Christians leaves Jesus out. It does an end run around Jesus. It ignores Jesus. It devalues Jesus. It takes a road to God that ignores the Son of God. Go figure. Why would God go to all the trouble to send his son to be the rescuer for only a select group and not provide that same son as the means whereby he could rescue those who have never heard of his son? And if there is a plan B or C or D, depending on what religious tradition you grew up in, then I would, again, I've said it this way many, many times, God owes an apology to his son. By the way, God does not owe an apology to his son. There is only one way. And the Bible is very clear that when we stand before God, the one seated at the right hand of the Father will be the son. And so if you got there without regard to the son, you're just dreaming. You're not there. You're not going to get there. You were dead in your trespasses in which you once walked because you followed the course of this world. You were in bondage to your identity as a son of disobedience. You looked like your other father, not your heavenly father. You looked like, you acted like, you thought like, you chose like. He's very clear in verse 3. We once lived in the passions of our flesh. He's clear in 1 John that the passions of the flesh will pass away. They are not eternal. Thanks be to God. The things that have got us in trouble in this life will not get us in trouble in the life to come because they will pass away. In this life, we are slaves to the passions of the flesh. We are all in the same shape. I want to suggest to you that we are all helpless, powerless, or let me say it a different way. We are Lazarus four days in the tomb, and the only way out is a miracle. A miracle. It seems to me the apostle wants his hearers in Ephesians chapter 2 and his hearers today in our context to have the same experience. And that is to think back and to recognize that we were lost, that we were damned, that we were doomed, that we were dead. And that short of a miracle... We had no hope. We had failed in living up to God's design for us. God had a plan that we were made in his image. We share a common ancestry. We all come from Adam. 
We all are sons and daughters of Adam. We all are bound to our own desires and passions of the flesh. We are all the sons of disobedience. Adam, disobedient Adam. We are sons and daughters of that one. And we carry in our bodies the very nature. He gives that point uh, in, in verse 3. We were by nature the children of wrath, children of deserving of wrath. And yet God in his tender mercies rescued us. But he wants us to look back, to recognize that we once were that. And that your testimony is different than mine, mine from yours. No two of us are the same. And yet every one of us are exactly the same. The details, the road, if you will, that we have traveled is different. But the fact is we all came from the same dirt. We all came from the same loins. We all came from the same man. So it doesn't matter whether your parents raised you at their knee for Christ's sake or whether or not you're now long in the tooth and you've never, except prior to today, heard the gospel. The point is we're all in the same shape. We all have a past. We all must contend with that past. We all must recognize that God rescued us from that past. <clears throat> we should gather together as the people of God this morning, even as I'm sure the Ephesians would have done so when they saw this letter for the first time. And they would have said, you know, we've come a long way. You know, we, we really were in worse shape than we thought we were. We really don't have a leg to stand on to puff our chests out and say we're special. We can't run around and act like because we know God or God knows us or because we've known God for a long, long, long time. Somehow we're better than somebody who doesn't know God at all. You know, men, men love to put people in categories of importance. That's a very, very worldly practice. It's not, it's not of God at all. The reality is we are different. We do have different categories, right? We're not all from the same place. We don't all come from the same experience. We don't all have the same criteria that define our lives or explain our lives or whatever. We, don't, we are different. We, we get it. But the question is, do any of those differences really matter? Virtually none of them do, by the way. Virtually none of them. You can be, you can be from the best family and be blind. You, you can be from the best family and just be callous. You, you can be from the best family and have no regard for the things that the family has regard for. You, you can be all that. Or you can be from the worst family. If you will, the, the most underprivileged family. And God comes in the middle of your, your family, your, your sadness or your sorrow or your hardship. And he plucks you out of that. And he sets you on solid ground makes much of you 
Reminds you that you're loved. Reminds you that, reminds you that you're forgiven. Reminds you that you have a name. His name. And he reminds you that he's given you life. And he intends for you to live that life. Not with a load of regret. Not with a load of guilt. Not with a load of shame. But he wants you to stand up on your feet and walk in Christ. You were, but you're not anymore. You were, but that's the old days. You were, but that's in the past. The question is not what you were, but what you are. And that's why the balance of this paragraph is going to celebrate that. God, rich in mercy, came to rescue us. I was guilty. Trespasses and sin characterized my life. I was guilty. I was in bondage to disobedience because I was the son of disobedience. I was guilty of being dead until I wasn't. Now I'm alive. The question is, do you remember? Do you recognize that? Do you, do you take your heart back and say, God, thank you. Thank you that today I have a future. Today I have hope. Today I have joy. Today I have promise instead of that. Thank you, Father, that I'm not dead in my trespasses and sin. Thank you that though I failed, you didn't fail. Though I rebelled, you, you saved me nonetheless. I want to urge you today to give consideration to who you are in God, what God has done for you, what God is doing for you, and not take it for granted. I want to suggest to you that there is an application that bears consideration. There is a suggestion today that the Christian church <clears throat> has forgotten the awe of God, the reverence of God. That may be your soapbox. I'm not uh, trying to make a soapbox where there's not one. But I do want to suggest to you that if it is true that we've lost our reverence for God and our awe for God, it is because we have forgotten Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I don't know what it would be like to be physically raised from the dead, neither do you, since none of you have ever had that experience. But I do have a theory. My theory is that if one of you, if I died and one of you came up to my body, spoke words over that, telling me to get up and rise, and I got up and went on with my life, my attitude about you would be, I don't know, really big. I want to suggest to you, say, well, it's not necessary for me to go back and relive all those sins. Absolutely, you are right. It is not necessary. But it is necessary for you to never forget that those sins are there. And the only reason that they don't count, that they don't matter, is because God rescued you and he gave you life. He took a dead corpse, spiritually dead, and he raised it to life. And he breathed the Holy Spirit into your spiritual nostrils and gave you life. And he took your hard heart 
and he made it soft. He took your darkened eyes and made them see. God did that through his son, the Lord Jesus, and by the means of his Holy Spirit. God is at work in your life, and God has rescued you. You were perishing, but God saved you. Thanks be to God. Don't ever forget where you came from. Don't ever forget who rescued you from that pit, who rescued you from that grave, who rescued you from that deadness in your life. Don't ever forget and always look to the one who has done this very thing for you. Recognize that you cannot earn his grace. You cannot return, as it were, the favor of his grace. You cannot, if you will, satisfy the debt that you owe to the one who raised you from the dead. You cannot do that, but you can worship him. You can celebrate him. You can cling to him. You can love him. You can respond to him with affection and devotion. You can live your life in such a way that you will not return to your trespasses and sins, to the desires of your flesh, and to the activities of the sons of disobedience. That is the characterization of dead people. Let us recognize that God has made us alive. Let us celebrate that. Let us live in that joy. Let us come even in this room Sunday after Sunday and say, God is great and his son is the means whereby I know him as God and I love his son. And let us sing to him. Let us worship him. Let us celebrate him and let us go from here and make sure that the world knows that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life because I was dead and now I'm alive. Thanks be to God. I pray that God will change our lives and that he will give us grace to see the beauty of this so that we will not go back to the past somehow to wallow in it, but go back to the past somehow to stand up out of it yet again and say, that was then and this is now, and now is better than then. And the only reason now exists is because God took care of then. Praise be to God. I trust you know him. I trust you're telling others about him. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Only God, rich in mercy, can save. Only God can rescue. Only God can take the dead man and make him alive. Let us remember that and worship him today. Pray with me. Father, I thank you that when we were lost... You found us when we were helpless. You gave us a miracle. Thankful, Father, that when we needed a Savior, you gave us your Son. Thank you. Oh, God, thank you. We have failed, and yet you have not. You have succeeded where we did not and could not. We were dead and now alive. Glory to God. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your devotion. We're mindful, Lord, of your grace. Help us to love you today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.